The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something special. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. So for me, you know, what I love about an idea for a novel is that something attracts me that's true. And I absolutely love what Mark Twain said, which was that um, fiction is obliged to stick to possibilities. Truth isn't. And it's these implausible truths on the historical record, things that actually happened, that draw me into the story. And it's something that if you made it up, nobody would believe it. And so this, this, the story of the racehorse has all kinds of twists and turns uh, in it. And the interesting thing with this novel, Horse, is that if you're reading something and it seems unlikely, that is the true thing. Welcome back to The Writer Files. This is your humble host, Kelton Reed, wishing you pages, patience, and perseverance per usual. Best-selling author and Pulitzer Prize winner Geraldine Brooks spoke to me about why truth is stranger than fiction, letting story drive narrative, and the overheard conversation that led to her latest novel, Horse. Geraldine is the author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, March, and the international bestsellers The Secret Chord, Caleb's Crossing, People of the Book, and Years of Wonder. Her latest novel, Horse, is described as a sweeping story of spirit, obsession, and injustice across American history. Time Magazine said of the book, Horse isn't just an animal story, it's a moving narrative about race and art. Geraldine has also written acclaimed nonfiction works, including Nine Parts of Desire and Foreign Correspondence. She started out as a reporter in her hometown of Sydney, Australia, and went on to cover conflicts as a Wall Street Journal correspondent in Bosnia, Somalia, and the Middle East. In this file, Geraldine and I discussed her early years as a war correspondent, why she chose to write a braided narrative based on an overheard conversation, reading history to find a verisimilitude, empathy and fiction, writing through a pandemic, and a lot more. Stay calm and write on. And don't forget, you can always support this show by heading to writerfiles.fm, where you can also sign up for email updates, get links to merch, and other resources for writers. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click follow to automatically see new interviews in your podcatcher as soon as they're published and drop us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you tune in to help other writers find us. And we are back on The Writer Files. I am honored today to be joined by 
a very special guest. I have the Pulitzer Prize winning author, journalist, Geraldine Brooks is joining us today. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. We appreciate your taking a time out and to talk about the latest and all things writing. Well, thank you, Kelton. It's a pleasure to be with you. I can't wait to talk about Horse and your latest opus, but take us back a little bit as we do with so many authors. Let's talk about your fascinating uh, journey here to uh, bestselling author and Pulitzer winner. Um, Take us back a little bit because I understand you've had a securitist path as a journalist and a foreign correspondent at one point. Maybe take us back to the days when you used to have to pack a bulletproof vest for your job. Yeah, well, for about a decade, I was a foreign correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, uh, covering crises in the Middle East and uh, in African nations and in the during the Balkans War. So yeah, I had a I had a packing list in case I got a call in the middle of the night and wasn't thinking clearly. And on it was a bulletproof vest and a chador, which was necessary in some of the countries where I was working, and all kinds of other things like um, wet wipes because you know they might not be running water. <laughs> so it was a very different life in those days. Yeah. What prompted you, do you think, to make the detour towards um, creative and historical fiction? What prompted me was the arrival of a baby boy, uh, and (laughs) I didn't want to be woken up in the middle of the night and told to go to the place where they just started shelling. You know, it Mm. it was time to make a change in my life. I realized that I needed to do that when I was uh, lying on the cement floor of a lockup in the secret police headquarters in Port Harcourt, Nigeria, and I didn't know how long they were going to keep me there. And I thought, you know, I'm getting, I'm getting up there. If we're going to have a family, I need to get <laughs> cracking on it. So, um, not long after they deported me, my my son was born about a year after that, and so that was. That was really, I didn't, you know, it was the end of my career as a foreign correspondent, at least while he was going to be an infant. And so I thought I would try this other thing. And lucky for me, it worked out. And it's turned out to be um, a wonderful thing to be able to do. Amazing, amazing. And have a family. Yeah. Well, now uh, going on five best-selling historical novels, a Pulitzer Prize. How are you feeling about the run-up to your latest? Well, it's always a nerve-wracking time when the book is out of your control. You've put the last red pencil lines through the ugly sentences and you've done everything you can and you can't do any more, but it hasn't yet found its way into the hands of readers. So you, you're walking around in a pretty nervous state <laughs> at this point. <laughs> right. Um, well, yeah, it must be interesting also, uh, kind of coming out of the, the haze of the pandemic, of course, um, you know, I've been speaking with authors throughout, um, and there, you know, there have been different, different phases, right. But of course the kind of the virtual tours started rather early on and there was some disappointment and then, uh, widespread adoption of platforms like zoom 
that kind of made it a little bit more easy for to reach readers. But um, yeah, it must, it must be kind of interesting for you. Well, I'm very, I'm very, very glad that, you know, I was uh, still in the writing phase for much of the pandemic and the editing phase. And I will actually be able to go and meet up with booksellers and readers again. And I cannot wait to do that because I think we've all been so isolated. And yeah, thank goodness for Zoom, but I think we're all a tiny bit over it. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, let's talk about the seeds of horse and this, this fantastic, uh, story and of course the reviews have been been pouring in and congratulations on the work i wanted to mention that uh new york times book review had said that horse is uh really a book about the power and pain of words lexington which you can talk about is ennobled by art and science and roars back from obscurity to achieve the high status of metaphor um yeah talk about this real life racehorse that that this story is kind of craft around named lexington uh one of the most famous thoroughbreds in american history and how you as the boston globe kind of put it um they they called you supernatural in your ability to time travel of course bringing to life these these three uh, threading together these three stories uh into one narrative yeah well it is a braided narrative and it is set in three time periods. And I didn't realize that that was going to be the structure when I set out. I overheard at a lunch an official from the Smithsonian talking about how he had just delivered the skeleton of the most famous racehorse of the 19th century from an attic in the uh, Natural History Museum to pride of place in a new exhibition at the International Museum of the Horse, where the skeleton of this famous racehorse Lexington was finally going to emerge back into the public eye after after some decades and maybe centuries of obscurity. Uh, and and as he as he regaled the table with this story of the horse and the twists and turns in its brilliant career, and then what happened to it during the Civil War, I was. I was not eating my lunch. I was hmm. completely riveted, and um, I realized that this was probably going to be the subject for my next novel. And I was intrigued with the contemporary story of the science at the Smithsonian. And when I went there to research that, it was it was like opening the door to a cabinet of extraordinary curiosities. The Museum Support Center in Maryland, where all the research for the Smithsonian is done. And it's research on antiquities and art masterpieces and bones and tissue samples from all over the world. And so I was looking at all the information that can be extracted from bones and then all the work that can be done on um, the provenance of paintings when we're not sure about who the artist was. And, you know, just fascinating contemporary story. And, and the, this uh, a painting of the horse led to the mystery of why it was in the hands of a famous gallerist in New York City in the immediate post-World War II period. And this gallerist was a famous feminist, Martha Jackson, who um, was responsible for advancing the careers of some of the most edgy contemporary artists of the day. So why did she have this 19th century oil hmm. of a racehorse? 
Mm-hmm. So there were so many strands to pursue, and it was just uh, wonderful to dive in and follow the line of fact in each case as far as I could. And then when you couldn't know what happened, uh, then to use a novelist's imagination and say, well, maybe this is what happened. Yeah. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview, and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, you've talked about length, the difference between, you know, writing journalism, you know, for journalism and, and nonfiction, of course, and, and now um, writing fiction. Talk a little bit about, yeah, kind of your, your unique research process, because as I understand it, you know, each, each, uh, histor- you know, I, I find historical fiction to be some of the, I think, the, the hardest fiction to write, but also some of the most fascinating. Talk talk a little bit about, about that process, and then kind of getting into the actual flow state once that's uh, mostly completed. So for me, you know, what I love about an idea for a novel is that something attracts me that's true, and I absolutely love what Mark Twain said, which was that um, fiction is obliged to stick to possibilities, truth isn't. And it's these implausible truths on the historical record, things that actually happened, that draw me into the story. And it's something that if you made it up, nobody would believe it. And so this, this, the story of the racehorse has all kinds of twists and turns uh, in it. And the interesting thing with this novel, Horse, is that if you're reading something and it seems unlikely, that is the true thing. <laughs> and the things that are kind of ordinary are the things that I made up. <laughs> so hmm. I like to follow that line of fact absolutely as far as I can to, to get to the bottom of what we know for sure. And then when that line frays and disappears, that's when you have to take the novelist's leap and you try and do it 
with as much information as you can, which means resting on the work of real historians who have done all the heavy lifting to tell us what the domestic life of enslaved people was like, what the status of their marriages was like. And so I read a lot of real historians to kind of get the um, the verisimilitude. And then I read as much as I can that was written by people of the period to get the voices right, mm. to find the, the words that they use. It's very important to me. A good example from another book of mine, uh, Caleb's Crossing, I had a young character who is learning to be a midwife and she needs to use the word fetus but I'm pretty sure that in 1665 she wasn't using the word fetus Hmm. and so I go and research what the word in use at that time was and it's shapeling interesting and when you have her say shapeling it it is really like time traveling because it puts you in a whole different mindset and so it's very important to me to get that as right as possible and I just go along and I let the story tell me what I need to know. And then I go and find it out. I don't do all the research up front because I think that leads to that leads to pushing the story in a way that maybe the story doesn't need to go just because you happen to know something fascinating and you're going to cram it in there, whether it belongs or not. So <laughs> I like to let the story drive the research. Interesting. So. Um- if you could be like kind of evocative about maybe at the peak of your prowess, you know, when you're getting, when you're really getting into this story and you're getting words on the page, what is it, what is a really prolific day um, look or feel like for you? Oh, those are the magical days. You know, everything goes right and you end up with something that's good and true and maybe even beautiful, but those are the rare days. Mostly it's the slogging. So, you know, I live on Martha's Vineyard and we've got a lot of stone walls here and I think about writing a lot like building a stone wall Mm. (laughs) because sometimes you find just exactly the right stone for the space that you're up to and it's got an interesting texture and maybe a little lichen and moss and it just looks really great and you put it in and it sits steady uh, and the wall goes up straight and true. And then other days, you just can't find the right rock. And you look around and you look around and you pick up one and you're tired and you cram it in anyway. And it's not settling and the wall's unsteady and it looks wrong. And you leave it there and you keep going. But the next day you come back and you say that's not good enough and you have to push the whole thing over. So <laughs> it's a bit <laughs> like that with writing. Yeah, absolutely. I like that. Well, uh, of course, I will point at your home base there, GeraldineBrooks.com, and a link to the book. And you're on Twitter and Facebook. But I, w- I just wanted to mention again, uh, Horse, based on the remarkable true story of the record-breaking thoroughbred Lexington Horses, a novel of art and science, love and obsession, and our unfinished reckoning with racism. I thought that the in truth, when I was looking at the different covers from the different uh, countries, I thought that the the UK edition was was pretty stunning. It's very interesting the different approaches that the publishers mm-hmm. have taken. I always find this fascinating. And the British cover has taken a detail from one of the paintings that is mentioned in the novel, 
And the reason the paintings are important is during the 18th and 19th century, when black individuals were depicted by white artists, they tended to be caricatured. They tended to, the white artists tended to exaggerate the features and they would use black people in the paintings mainly as kind of a prop to aggrandize the white subject of the painting. So they'd be a servant or something like that. And the difference with these equestrian paintings, particularly by an American artist called Edward Troy, is that the black horsemen are depicted as individuals with great dignity and individual personalities and there's a fantastic painting and it's the, the the painting is of a famous horse called Richard Singleton but there are three individuals depicted looking after the horse which was the truth of the equestrian industry in the antebellum period it rested mm. on the plundered labor of enslaved black horsemen or formerly enslaved. So there's a trainer, and he is an incredibly dignified and authoritative figure in this painting. There's a jockey going about, you know, the business of saddling the horse. There's a groom attending to the horse, and all of them are very distinct and realistically portrayed. And the English cover has taken a detail of that painting showing those men, and I thought that was a great choice. I really like it. Yeah, yeah, quite stunning. And uh, as you mentioned, um, kind of an interesting, I, I guess that's a business decision, but uh, an interesting choice. And uh, a fascinating story, of course, that is intertwined in the book. And yeah, congratulations on the work. It's got to feel pretty good. And, and the, uh, the blurbs and the reviews are, are, are stellar. So far, so good, I always say. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> you, always, you always have to, you know, you have to put on your foul weather gear and be ready for a total shellacking at some point. <laughs> well, knocking on wood over here, uh, I, don't, I don't know, you know, having come from um, such an interesting background and, and, you know, having kind of a different viewpoint of, of the world and of, of politics, yeah, what, what is... What does it feel like right now to be an author, uh, yeah, headed out on tour and and kind of uh, taking on a, uh, you know, probably some questions about r race in America or you know in general. How does that feel? Well, you know, I, I didn't really set out to write a story about race, and I don't know if I would have been brave enough to set out, honestly in the current climate where there's so much debate about who gets to tell what stories. It wasn't something that I provocatively set out to do, but once I started researching the story of this horse, I realized that to not tell it would be worse than taking the risk entailed in telling it because if mm. I didn't tell the story of these incredibly skilled black professionals who were responsible for the history of um, the thoroughbred industry and for this the success of this specific horse, then I'd just be erasing them again. So I'd be complicit in mm. their erasure from the story. And I wasn't prepared to do that. So if I was going to go ahead with the story at all, it was going to become a story about race. And 
if you're going to do that, then the next thing you have to say is, I have to do the work. I have to try my utmost to get this right and to, you know, to get as much factual material of what is known of these horsemen's lives and their conditions and their experiences as I possibly can. And at that point, you know, you make a decision that you either believe that imagination is a segregated place or you don't, and I don't want to believe that it is. I don't want to believe that the only story that I can tell is the story of people who are just like me, who had experiences like mine or who are of my ethnicity because I actually don't feel I know any more about the Irish immigrants who settled in Australia, who I'm descended from. I don't know their inner life anymore. You know, I would have to research that too and I would have to do the same work of empathy of trying to figure out what it was like to come from somewhere as green and wet as Ireland and wind up in western New South Wales in that dry, completely different country, completely different climate you know so it's about do you believe that the effort of empathy should be despised or should the effort of empathy be encouraged and I come down very strongly in let's not ever despise an attempt at empathy because that's what makes us human well put Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, um, I don't think that we can wrap the interview without talking about Screaming Hot Wings. And uh, I understand that's the name of one of your horses. Well, Screaming Hot Wings belongs to my neighbor. Oh, okay. He, <laughs> he is an off-the-track racehorse, and he is the paddock mate to my horse, Valentine, who is a small black mare. Hmm. And uh, she was a former show pony in, in her youth. And now the two of them are inseparable friends. And um, Screaming Hot Wings is a hilarious horse. He has a huge personality and a very busy mind and, uh, and strong opinions. Hmm. And my neighbor says he, he is, he's 33 years old, which just goes to show that these horses that have their careers as two- and three-year-olds, have so much more to give if they're well looked after and cared for because he is still a great, a great horse to ride with a silky canter. And, hmm. um, and so we, uh, we keep our horses together, and they are very happy about that. Amazing. Um, having, having gotten your first horse uh, you know, a little bit later in life, does, is, do you feel like there's any part of owning or riding horses that contributes to your creative process. I mean, well, it was it was crucial to 
this book because all the feelings that I have given to the young groom, Jared, are the feelings that I have about horses. And all the expertise that Jared has is what I have learned from caring for horses. So I wouldn't have been able to write this book if I wasn't a horse-crazy person. (laughs) Perfect. Well, I love it. And um, actually, the Smithsonian Magazine blurb was nice. Horse mingles the past with the present, and history melds with well-informed invention. Brooks crafts an exceptionally sensitive portrayal of an enslaved groom and his special bond with Lexington. And, uh, of course, a couple fun ones before we sign off with your advice to your fellow scribes on just how to keep going. Uh, If you could have dinner with any author from any era uh, to your favorite place in the world, who would you take and where would you take them? That's a great question. Well, I'd have to bring back my late husband, Tony Horwitz, because he was the most fun at a dinner table of anyone I have ever known. And then I would like to invite Jane Austen because she is such a fantastic wit. And I think I would invite Andrew Sean Greer because he would be hilarious as well. And then we would go to eat my favorite thing in the world, which is a king prawn sambal at the Malaya restaurant overlooking Mm. Sydney Harbour. Amazing, amazing. Sambal in Sydney Harbour. I like it. Um, of course, I was very sorry to hear about your, your late husband, Tony, and uh, you you share two sons and two Pulitzers. That's uh, that's really quite an accomplishment in life, I think. Um, yeah, any, any final thoughts about uh, the dedication to, to horse? So, you know, of course, I dedicated this book to Tony because he helped me a great deal in the early stages. This is a period that he is super familiar with. Mm. And our research overlapped because he was working on what turned out tragically to be his last book, Spying on the South, which is an exploration of Frederick Law Olmsted, who before he became the celebrated architect of Central Park and so many other wonderful green spaces, was a reporter. Uh, for the New York Times, and he was assigned to travel through the South just before the Civil War and find out why our nation was so divided. And Tony retraced that journey for his book, Spying on the South, and looked at what was going on when Frederick Law Olmsted made that trip and what was going on just in the run-up to Donald Trump's election and why this country is so divided. Incredible, incredible. Um, beautiful work. Congratulations. Uh, one final pearl of wisdom from you on just how to keep going. Um, so I got this advice when I was writing my first book, I happened to be living next door to the writer, Michael Lewis, and he saw me wandering around. Uh, we were living in London at the time and he would see me wandering the streets of Hampstead. And he he said, you know, you're never going to get that book done if you don't put your bum in the seat. (laughs) Perfect. it's always stuck with me because it's the necessary if not the sufficient condition you just have to do the work you have to show up and put in the hours as if it's any other job you know it's it's all very well to wait to get your aura on straight and all that but look hairdressers don't get to do that mechanics don't get to do that you show up (laughs) and you do the work and you do something and it might not be great 
but at least once you've done something, you've got something to make better. And if you just fret about not doing it, then you're never going to get anywhere because you've got nothing to work with. I love it. Words of wisdom uh, that we cannot ignore. Get your bum in the seat. Geraldine, thank you so much for taking the time. I understand that you've got lots to do and um, congrats on the latest. We look forward to it. Um, the release date here in the U.S. is the 14th of June of 2022. And uh, best of luck with everything. Thank you so much, Kelton. Thanks so much for joining us for this file. And if you're a fan of the show, simply head over to writerfiles.fm for more. That's writerfiles.fm. And scene. We got it. You got a couple minutes to get a cup of tea. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Take care. We'll be in touch.